Welcome to the I-29 MUU Dairy Podcast. I-29 MUU University is a consortium of land-grant universities in Minnesota, Iowa, South Dakota, and Nebraska. This podcast covers timely news, information, and research for today's dairy industry. Hi, my name is Jim Salfer with the University of Minnesota, and I'm a regional dairy educator. On today's podcast, we are joined by Dr. Isaac Salfer. He's a professor at the University of Minnesota. I'm also joined by Fred Hall, who is an Iowa State Extension Dairy Field Specialist in Northwest Iowa. So, Fred, welcome aboard. Good morning, Jim. We uh, are are doing this amidst a little bit of a snowstorm in our part of the world right now. Well, it's kind of that time of year again. So, Isaac, welcome to our podcast, our I-29 podcast. Yeah, thank you. Excited to join. We're not quite getting snow up in the Twin Cities yet, but it looks like we will be soon. So, Yep, that's kind of how it goes in the winter in the upper Midwest. So, Isaac, I know for your PhD, you did some work related to fat tests and value of fat is at really high levels right now and are maybe likely to stay at that level for a long period of time. So we thought we'd just get together and talk a little bit about what's normal fat test or fluctuation in fat tests and what are some things producers could do right now uh, looking at fat tests. And I know, uh, Fred, you've talked often as we talk a little bit about base programs. So I don't know if you want to comment a little bit on why why you think that's really important that these guys optimize, maybe is the right term, or maximize their fat test. Well, I think we've all experienced when the the creamery is full up and they have to put these orphan loads out with their broker, it costs them money. So they figured out real early, they've always had these base programs, and they started bringing them to life, and uh, that can smart just a little bit. So, uh, yeah, I don't think they're going away. I think uh, more and more we're going to have to deal with that. And I guess my question would be, you know, are we, we looking at fat? Are we looking at protein? Or are we going to be thinking, let's shoot for seven pounds of solids in every hundred pounds of milk? So that milk really has the maximum value. I don't know, Isaac, what do you think? Yeah, I think it probably a lot of it depends upon marketing, right? So I think a lot of it probably even co-op to co-op, depending upon the use of what they're using that product for. I'm not really a milk product guy, but that's what my assumption would be in terms of how they price that. I think probably on a farm level, I, I think shooting for a total pounds of solids is a really good benchmark because there are flux, fluctuations in the value of milk versus the value of protein. I know for a really long time, up until relatively recently, uh, milk protein was priced much higher than milk fat. And it was only within the last maybe five to seven years that milk fat has really increased dramatically in price. So I don't think we're going to be going back anytime soon to a where we're where producers are going to be paid more on pounds of milk. I think we will be paid mostly on component pricing. Um, but I think you know shooting for pounds of total solids, like you said, is probably a good benchmark. Um, the nice thing about milk fat is that you know, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Is milk fat, fat tends to be a lot more easy to manipulate on the farm level, especially from dietary intervention uh, compared to milk protein. It is possible to obviously to influence your milk protein concentration of, of milk 
uh, dietarily, it's usually a more limited range in terms of how much you can change it. Milk fat is a little bit more flexible to diet than uh, the milk protein. So Isaac, I've been on farms this fall. Uh, we're doing this in the fall or early winter, and everybody's commenting they're struggling a little bit more with milk production as we move into the fall. And fat tests are starting to go up. And I know there's some seasonality to this fat test swing that you have. Do you want to comment? What is the normal seasonality? What should you expect your fat to go up and down through the years? Uh, do you want to comment? Because I, I don't hear too many people this time of year saying, oh, my fat test is going down. It's always going up, but it's a matter of how much it goes up. Yeah, no, that's totally right. So that was a lot of work I did in my PhD, and we're doing a little bit more of that now as in my role as a professor, too. But looking at the seasonality of production, and we, you know, when I was in graduate school, I did some work where we pulled all the DRMS records, all the DHI herd tests, across all the herds basically that are on DHI test in four different states kind of representing four different regions of the U.S. Uh, so Minnesota, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Florida. Not that that really makes a huge difference, but um, we found that the pattern of both milk components and milk yields followed a really consistent pattern. And it, you know, a lot of times I think a lot of producers recognize this, but I think we kind of always assumed it was related to heat stress. Um, but what we found is that regardless of how hot of a summer it was, regardless of how, you know, what the weather was across that year, cows continue to follow this really consistent pattern. Um, and the other thing that, you know, I, heat stress is important. So I never want to get to saying that heat stress doesn't influence milk production. It definitely does. But the other thing that led us to believe that there was some sort of seasonal effect outside of just uh, the heat stress that occurs in the summer is that the pattern follows a really gradual kind of waveform curve. So instead of it being, you know, consistent, 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 and then dropping uh, when it gets to July and August where it's really hot, you see kind of this gradual increase. So uh, gradual increase across the year, gradual decrease across the year. Um, what we saw when we did that characterization is pretty much exactly what you described. So farmers, you know, shouldn't be too surprised about the pattern of production that they're seeing. Usually um, milk yield, so total milk volume is usually the lowest in September, um, right around the start of the fall seasons so around September 20th. And it's usually highest in May, around the start of March, I should say, around the start of spring. Um, and then components follow uh, a slightly different rhythm that's slightly shifted. So fat and protein tests tend to peak right about the start of winter or around the first of the year. So we're talking December 20th, December 20th to January 1st, somewhere in there. Um, and that's true of both fat and protein percent. And then as far as like variation, particularly in components, that can make a pretty big difference. It's, you know, when we did this characterization, we were kind of surprised to see how much of a difference the seasonal pattern had on uh, your milk fat and milk protein test. So the difference between the peak fat and protein test, and again, this is on average across all the herds, between the peak of the year, which would be around January 1st, and the point of the year where it reaches the minimum, which is around July 1st or somewhere in there, start of, start of uh, summer, uh, is about 0.3 percentage units. So that's the difference between a 4.0 fat test and a 3.7 fat test. So just based on the seasonality of, of milk production, you'd expect if there was a cow that had a 3.7% milk fat per test in on, on July 1st, that that same cow should have a 4.0 um, milk fat test in, in January or on January 1st. So my next question is, you would expect farmers should be disappointed if they don't see their fat test going up this time of year, and then they should be actually more alarmed is if 
you know, if your fat test right now in winter, December is the same as it was on July 3rd, really, that doesn't mean your fat test is the same. In reality, your fat test is lower based on what you would normally expect cow's seasonal rhythm to be. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly right. And actually, based on the pattern, so there tends to be a really big ramp up between about October and December. So you really should be seeing about a, at least a one to, to maybe even 2% increase in milk fat test from October until, you know, the, the rest of the year. So, and then protein, the, the effect is not quite as dramatic. So protein, you'd probably be looking at about a 0.05 to 0.8, 0.08 increase from October until now. Uh, based on the seasonality, you should be, if milk is staying the same, you're actually losing, or milk, your components are staying the same, you're actually losing potential value there, potential components compared to what they should be. You know, that's interesting. And I hope there's some nutritionists and maybe farmers listening, because even on a farms, you know, the first thing that always comes up, of course, is new corn silage, new corn silage. But even farms that aren't in new corn silage, so, I mean, most of them now have a lot of inventories until maybe even the beginning of January. So they struggle with production and their components start going up. So I think that's interesting because I think historically we've wanted to blame we were going into new corn silage too early. But I, I think what you've described is also what I hear on farms when I'm on. And I think sometimes maybe that gives a little solace to farmers and their nutritionists to think, you know, I'm doing everything I can, but we're still losing milk and I'm gaining fat tests. So maybe some of this is just the normal seasonal rhythm of cows. Fred, do you have any comments? Well, I think the biorhythms of cows is maybe something that we haven't always kept in the back of our mind. So, and now we've studied it a little more. We kind of know that there is some seasonality and some biorhythm that makes these cows different in july 1 than on january 1 so isaac now we got to figure it out that we've got our seasonality but what are some of the other factors um obviously there's a lot of them because we've got herds that test four five and we've got herds of holsteins that test three seven um what are some of the other factors that uh, farmers should be thinking about that they can really maximize a particular fat in this period of time where fat's so valuable and is Fred mentioned earlier, we don't necessarily want to get more pounds of fat by making a whole lot more milk. Right, right. Well, the biggest thing I say, I would say uh, from a nutritional standpoint, whenever I think about fat, I think about rumen health, right? And this, for a lot of nutritionists, this isn't surprising. This is something that they've heard for a long period of time. But I like to think about the more stable you can keep your rumen pH, the less drops of rumen pH you can have throughout the day, the higher fat test you're going to have. And that's so when you're looking at milk fat production, you have really kind of two different types of fat that you have within the mammary gland. You have milk that comes directly from the diet. So we, we call that preformed fatty acids, which we usually consider fatty acids that are 16 or more carbons. And then you have de novo synthesized fatty acids that are 16 or less carbons. So out of those two populations, the de novo are a lot cheaper because the cow is making them themselves, right? It's kind of like if, I don't know if we're going to be talking about protein at all later, well, we always say, you know, the cheapest source of protein for cows is if the microbes can make their own protein. It's kind of the same thing. If cows can make their own fat using acetate from, you know, the VFA acetate from rumen fermentation to make their own milk fat, that's the cheapest source. When we think about what's influencing that milk fat synthesis within the mammary gland, the de novo fatty acid synthesis, 
that's really based on but how many trans intermediates are produced during rumen fermentation. So essentially when you have low rumen pH, you produce these, the process of biohydrogenation. So the microbes that are present within the rumen are converting unsaturated fatty acids to saturated fatty acids. At low rumen pH during that process, they produce these bioactive fatty acids that essentially act as like hormones that can directly uh, decrease milk fat production. And I think a lot of times we think about like, oh, acidosis, acidosis, if you have long, you know, if you have consistently low rumen pH, that can reduce milk fat production. But even short-term drops in rumen pH, so if you have, you know, you don't feed, you leave the feed bunk empty for two hours so that when cows come up to the feed bunk, they slug feed. After they slug feed, the rumen pH drops really quickly. It'll probably go below 5.4. Um, even during that time period, you get a production of these bioactive fats that will go and decrease milk fat synthesis. Um, and potentially inhibit your total total milk fat test that you can have. I think you've really made the point that, you know, if that bunk's empty, it's costing you money in several ways. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know how many times we should be feeding or sweeping in bunks so cows can get at the feed, but we we can't let it get empty. I think that's the bottom line of your last two minutes of conversation. I was going to say, you bring up a good point too. It's not just, I mean, having the bunks be empty is a really extreme example, but anyway, you can stimulate cows to go up and eat more often, whether that's making sure you have enough bunk space so you're not having submissive cows that can't go up to the feed bunk as often per day as they want. If it's feeding more times a day to try to stimulate intake, pushing up feed also helps. There's been a little bit of research that shows that pushing up feed doesn't necessarily stimulate cows to go to the feed bunk. But certainly, if you don't push up feed often enough, they're going to have a harder time accessing feed when they get to the feed bunk. But essentially, anything you do that gets cows to eat more frequently throughout the day will stabilize rumen pH and increase milk fat tests for the reasons we talked about before. You've talked some about bunk man management. Is there anything else that's kind of non-nutritional related? Or is that the primary one is just really making sure you manage that bunk well? I think that's the first place you start is managing managing feed bunk, managing the diet, managing, making sure cows have a stable room and fermentation. With that, you also want to try to feed digestible fiber sources too. So that's another thing beyond just managing the feed bunk, also making sure that you have a good diet that has a high NDF digestibility because you don't want to drop room and pH too quickly that way. Uh, there are some other non-nutritional factors like genetics that can have some effect. We actually did some interesting work Genetics, we found there is actually not a huge amount of variation between uh, the PTA and milk fat. If you do a distribution, there's only about a 0.05% between the 90th percentile and the 10th percentile in terms of the PTA for milk fat percent. Um, but you do want to be making sure you're genetically selecting for milk fat. Interestingly, there are some, like if you're looking in the genomic world, there's a specific SNP that's on the DGAT1 gene that's responsible for about 40% of the genetic variation in milk fat percent, not that we really, you know, not like we're selecting cows specifically for that genotype, but when you're looking at your genetic selection, you, do, you definitely don't want to choose minus bulls for, for milk fat percent. But yeah, that's really, I think the biggest thing is that you want to look at that. Yeah. I don't know if that surprises me, Fred, you worked some in this whole genetic world too. I think, you know, as a herd, people have a little different goals, but there's just not that tremendous amount of variation i think when you look across a decade or something within a herd on what they're selecting for fat test i mean there there's probably some but to your point isaac i guess maybe it just kind of makes sense that 
there's not a tremendous amount of variation uh, between herds, although within herd selection, there's some. So that, that data was between herds, they're PTA fat. So you may have inner, more variation than that within your own individual herd and maybe potentially let that influence your culling decisions and things like that. In today's milk market, people are paying attention. I don't know if that's the number one thing, but as long as they've got it on their radar, I think that's important in this discussion of kind of said, okay, what we do at the feed bunk and what we do with the cow is probably the bigger issue we need to to be paying attention to. I'm going to kind of shift gears a little bit. We've kind of left protein along the road ditch here, but uh, let's start out, Isaac, by explaining the relationship between butterfat and protein. We know that they're kind of linked, but what is that link and what then can we do to improve it? Yeah. So in terms of their link, well, so some of it is just diet. So dietary energy concentration will influence overall, well, both in the rumen and in the mammary gland which will increase both fat and protein together. The other thing is there are some, without getting into too much biochemistry and physiology here, there is some cross-linking between the pathways of de novo fat synthesis and de novo protein synthesis that way too. I will say, so I said earlier that protein tends to be a little bit less malleable to diet. uh, And I think that is true to a certain extent. Typically, again, dietarily, and I, I guess the way I think about it more is, you know, so you have a genetic maximum for how much milk, fat, and protein percent And I don't know if we exactly know what that value is, but it's easier to get milk fat to be below that genetic maximum than it is to get protein because it's easy to do things in the rumen that can inhibit milk fat synthesis. However, uh, there are a lot of ways nutritionally that we can help maximize or get to that potential genetic maximum for milk protein percent. Some of those things would be making sure that we maximize microbial protein synthesis. So milk protein can come essentially from two sources. It can either come from dietary protein that escapes rumen fermentation, rumen breakdown, and makes it down into the rumen or uh, into the small intestine, or it can come from microbial protein that is synthesized within the rumen. It's the protein that's produced by the microbes within the rumen, right? So I think the number one cheapest way to maximize milk protein is maximize milk protein synthesis. So that makes sure, means make sure that you have enough energy available for your microbes to maximize their microbial growth and that you're making sure rumen conditions are optimal for microbial growth. So I have a, a good friend who I was in graduate school with that always says the cheapest protein source and the best protein source you can feed cows is actually starch. And the reason for that is because if you feed enough starch without causing rumen acidosis, it increases, it stimulates those micro, microbes to grow any maximized microbial protein synthesis. There are some other things you can do in terms of uh, amino acid balancing. So a lot of times we talk about this limiting amino acid concept where cows, milk protein will only go as high as what your limiting amino acid that's available for the mammary gland is. So usually the most limiting amino acids for cows are are methionine, lysine, and uh, there's been a lot more work looking at histidine. So feeding rumen protected amino acids for those or, or RUP sources, commodity RUP sources that are high in those amino acids can help increase milk protein as well. So Isaac, you touched on a few feed additives. You know, for every problem there is on a farm, there's always a feed additive to fix it. Do you want to talk about some of the feed additives, both for maybe to increase fat test and also to increase, I think you touched on protein with uh, 
kind of some of the amino acids, but there, are there any other feed additives that you can think of or that there's been research on that really can help maximize these components? Yeah, I want to be careful because I don't want to get myself in trouble with any companies, but you know, there's a lot of, so on the fat side, so we talked about de novo and preformed fat. There's a lot of fat sources that you can feed, commercially available fat sources that you can feed to cows that will help increase fat test. Usually those products are pretty expensive, but fat is worth a lot too, right? So you kind of got to make that economic calculation. I know a lot of producers are, are feeding them and seem to be you know, happy with that economic calculation in terms of feeding high fat sources, whether that be palm fat, whether that be one of the commercially available fat sources there. In terms of the rumen health side, you know, there, there's some work looking at feeding some enzymes that can improve uh, NDF digestibility, uh, yeast is oftentimes fed that can help improve fiber digestibility. Uh, you know, there's, I don't want to speak to any specific yeast products, but there's a variety of yeast products that are out there. And, you know, you can really get down the rabbit hole looking at which ones work and which ones don't in which situations and things like that, or how effectively they work. But I would say in general, yeast is another product you could have that can improve fiber digestibility could potentially help fat tests. On the protein side of things, so we talked about supplemental amino acids, feeding high REP commodity type sources. Uh, our lab is actually doing some work with branch chain volatile fatty acids, feeding those to dairy cow diets. And there was a lot of work that had been done in the 80s, I want to say, looking at branch chain VFAs, and they're pretty consistent that they improve microbial protein synthesis. So we're working again with a specific company, won't get into the details. Uh, they've essentially developed a product. Well, one of the issues with feeding branched-chain amino acids at that time in the 80s was that they had really low palatability because if you think they're VFAs, they're really stinky. So cows didn't want to eat them. But more recently, there's been products that have been developed that sort of get over that odor problem and that palatability problem. Doing ongoing research with these branched-chain VFAs, or sometimes they're called isoacids. Uh, to see if they can potentially improve microbial protein synthesis. So, Fred, beyond just protein and fat, you know, we th want to maximize, especially if we put bases on, we really do want to maximize the value of our milk. And I know you often uh, focus on somatic cell count as one way. Do you want to, I don't know if you want to make any comments on that? Because I think that is true. We re That's really our goal, right? Get every single pound of milk that goes out the door. We want that to be as valuable as it could potentially be. And it's not just components that affects that value. It's not just the value of that cleaner milk. We know that a cow that is having some stresses probably changes the fat protein and, and certainly the volume of the milk she's producing. So I think a basic premise for dairymen is if we are seeing a trend up or we have seen a spike, we need to figure out what's happened there and get it back. If we're at, you know, 175,000, it ought to be a discussion with the management. How do we move to 150,000 or how do we move to 125,000? So, yeah, I, I think selling clean milk uh, helps the, the cream we give us another bonus, but it also helps get the cows the health basis that we need to have. Yeah, I think there's a big value in improving somatic cell count, even if there wouldn't be a bonus for what you had mentioned. You know, you just have the cows are healthier, they milk more, you don't have as many calls. You know, it's just, it's a lot 
it's a lot more fun working with cows where you're not going out there and trying to deal with some of these cows that you might be determining if you want to treat them or not, not to mention the risk of um, antibiotic use, right? I mean, there's all going to continue to be pressure on all segments of animal agriculture to reduce the use of antibiotic and being good stewards. That's really what we should be using. And of course the easiest way to do that is just have healthy animals. I mean, they, we're going to have animals that get sick, right? I mean, as humans, we try to take good care of ourselves, and still at some point, sometimes we're going to need antibiotics, but I think the, if we can minimize that use, I think we're, we're really all better off. Isaac, um, we're going to make you look at your crystal ball right now. Oh, when Lord. we started, you know, I, I talked about, you know, the the target of seven pounds of solids per hundred pounds of milk. Uh, Hutch <clears throat> had talked to us about that in a webinar. What do you think the goal should be? Or what do you think that the, could we be doing nine pounds at some point in the future? Or what What's your thoughts here? That's a good question in terms of pounds of salt. Nine pounds of solid would be hard to achieve, but I also... You know, I never want to say anything is impossible. I imagine you know, I wasn't really around in the 1980s, but I imagine if you were around in the 1980s and you mentioned that seven pounds of solids would be a realistic good goal that farms should be shooting for, I imagine that you would probably think that that number is crazy. So I, I never want to put a cap around the genetic potential and genetic improvement of cows, especially when you see some of these really high end cows making, you know, 78,000 pounds of milk in a single lactation and still having a 3.8 fat test and a 3.1 protein test. So yeah, it's hard hard to speculate. That's one of the things that's harder in the future. But I certainly think above a 4.0 fat test, I had an article I wrote a little while for the Dairy Star that I, you know, and I think we're already getting to the point where a 4.0 fat test is the gold, gold standard. And I think a 3.2 protein test is going to become the, the uh, gold standard pretty quickly. And I think we're going to continue to improve milk production as we continue to genetically select cows and have improvements in nutrition and continue to be more precise that way. So, you know, I don't think nine pounds of solids in, let's say another 20, 25 years would be on, on average for, you know, an average herd would be unrealistic probably. Yeah. Isaac, you're kind of offending us when you ask if, you know, when you ask people if they've been around in the eighties, well, most people on the call probably have been around in the 80s. That's what yeah, I was old in the 80s, probably. I don't know. <laughs> well, but, but I think you make a really good point, Isaac. If in the 1980s, if you would, you know, back then the impression was if you had a 110 or 120 pound cow, their fat tests were a lot of times 3.2, 3.3, or even herds. If you had herds back then that would average 80 pounds of milk, typically you'd have three, 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 four fat tests on those herds. Uh, it's common for me in the last couple of weeks, I've been at a farm where the cows average 109 pounds with a four, three fat test. Even five years ago, you would have said there, you would have dreamt about those numbers. And so to your point, Isaac, I think you're right. We're it's not uncommon to see herds averaging 90 to 100 pounds with over a 4-0 fat test and a 3-2 or 3-3 protein, depending on the time of the year. So it 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 blows my mind. And as your point, I've been on farms where we, you get, and these are these are really unusual farms, but eight pounds of fat plus protein, it baffles my mind that a cow can make eight pounds of fat plus protein in a 24-hour period. I mean, I 
to me, it's it, it's a miracle almost. I mean, if you start doing the math, we've created unbelievably efficient animals. Yeah. Anyway, so much yeah, for my yeah. little story. But it's amazing. The cool thing is, is we're, we're, not, we're also helping improve their health at the same time, too. You know, yep. it, we're able to kind of make all these improvements. And we're seeing increases in conception rate and pregnancy yep. rate in these cows. And so it's not even like, like I think, you know, I give a lot of credit to the geneticists. The other people I want to give a lot of credit to, and I think that's helped a lot with improving fat tests while also improving production. I talked a little bit about NDF digestibility, and that's, you know, I think even, so I talked a little bit with Jolene Hadrick, who is the economist at the University of Minnesota. And she said, and this was not too surprising to me as a nutritionist, that the number one indicator of a profitability of a dairy farm was how digestible the NDF content of their forage is. So I think there's a lot of credit that should be given to, particularly with BMR hybrids and with the agronomic people and the people that are harvesting and putting up silages that are able to make feed, you know, silage that's really highly fermentable for fiber, or we're not having to, we're able to get enough energy into these cows without having to feed a boatload of starch, you know, highly fermentable starch, yep. that kind of thing. So. As we're kind of winding down for this podcast, uh, Isaac, parting thing that you want every producer who's listened to us today to, to walk back to the milk house with in his mind. Well, probably the number one takeaway that I can speak the most to is be aware of the seasonality of your cows and don't expect that your production in Jan July should be the same as your production in January and that you should be, uh, or for, for components. And for milk production, don't expect that your milk production in September is going to be the same as what it's going to be in March. So be aware of the seasonal rhythm. Again, it, it's about a 0.3% milk fat, 0.15% milk protein, and about, let me double check what it is. I have it open here, about uh, almost five pounds of milk per day that's going to be accounting just because of that seasonal rhythm. So that'd be the number one takeaway. And then keep the little things simple, have good bunk management high quality forages as much as you can. Don't overcrowd your cows, those kind of things. Also, all those little things can really add up to helping you maximize. The other thing I didn't mention earlier was heat stress. Heat stress can also have a major impact on both fat and protein percent. So make sure your cows are comfortable as well. Yeah, and a good diet that's highly digestible, right? You had mentioned that several times, just a really good functioning rumen. And as, yeah. as you both have mentioned that, you know, as nutritionists, I think we really get that kind of beat into our heads in a good way, that that really is important. Our cows are designed to eat good forages. So it's good. Good question, Fred. So, well, thanks for joining us today. I think we're kind of wrapping it up. Um, I hope we found our podcast enjoyable. And again, this is the I-29 Moo University Dairy Podcast. Make sure you check the episode notes and we might have additional resources or information from our sponsors there. We really do appreciate our sponsors that really help support this and all of our other programs. So with that, I don't know if Fred or Isaac have any uh, parting words, but I really appreciate all the work they put in and uh, the informative information on this podcast. Look forward to visiting with the folks at the next podcast. We'd like to thank our 2022-23 Annual I-29 sponsors, Iowa Corn Growers Association and T-Lay Dairy Video Sales. Learn more about Iowa Corn Growers Association at iowacorn.org. Learn more about T-Lay Dairy Video Sales at tlaydairyvideosales.com. I-29 Moo U is an equal opportunity provider. 
For the full non-discrimination statement or accommodation inquiries, go to extension.iastate.edu forward slash diversity forward slash ext.